Hey everyone, welcome to the Lighthouse Podcast, where you can hear our latest teachings and conversations. All right, well, it's good to be back with you guys and to take off my mask and everything. It's been really good to watch online. Pastor John's done an insanely good job making everything happen, so I wanted to give him just a little bit of recognition. John really pulls a lot of the strings and the loose ends together on all fronts. He's behind the camera, he's in front of the camera, and so, I mean, I think it's been invaluable, at least we've seen over the last while, what John's been up to, and so it's great to be back in person with you guys. I was really looking, looking forward to today, and I mean, it's cool that we're doing two services. I think all that stuff is really cool. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to adapt to the, new, to the new world, and we're all doing our best, but I do think the idea of running two services here is a really cool idea, and I'd love for, even when we're out of this stuff, there would just be so much going on that, man, I'd love to keep doing two services. But you guys get my, my second service energy level and my second service voice level after not speaking or singing for like a month. So it's, it's, uh, it's like I'm not, I haven't worked out, Darcy, and now I'm hitting the gym just two times in the same day. It's not a good idea, right? So we'll see how it goes, but I, mi- I might lose my voice. But over the last few weeks, we have been examining the Christmas story and the different characters and the different players in the story, kind of like their chess pieces on this board, and each one has a unique backstory and a motivation and different desires and different reasons why they're there and different things they care about. And we've picked apart our first week, Pastor John looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth and their barrenness and God's promise that they were going to have a child of significance And what was their response to that? What was the faith required of them and of us all in response to God's promises? Last week, we looked at Mary and and Joseph and this chaotic story of teen pregnancy outside of wedlock, traveling cross-country, and all of this chaos going on, and a promise from God of a new beginning. What, what is their response to all of this, and what is ours? Well, ultimately, you'll, if you spend some time reading or watching movies, you'll start to figure out that every good story has a good villain, right? There's a lot of Hallmark movies going on in our house right now, and there's not really anything going on in those movies, because there's no villain, right? Do you know what I mean? There's no tension at all. A good story has a good villain. And so you might be able to picture in your mind some of the books you've read or movies you've watched or shows, and you can think of some iconic villains. They might pop up in your head. I made a a short list. I'm going to run through them really quickly. Uh, This is super weird. I don't know why this happens to me, but for me, the first villain, iconic villain, that pops into my head is the Sheriff of Nottingham from Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Is that weird? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So I don't know why. It's, we had the VHS, and I remember my dad sat me down once when I was like, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13, and he was like, Adam, pop the popcorn. We're going to watch like a, like a big boy movie. And I, just, and I locked that in my brain like, 
oh, this is a serious movie, right? <laughs> so Sheriff of Nottingham, I'll go quickly through these. Uh, if you're a fan, like me, of the, uh, the Harry Potter series, there's Voldemort, the big bad, and then there's Professor Umbridge, the teacher. And the interesting thing is if you, if you talk to the hardcore fans of that series, even though Tom Riddle or Voldemort is like the big, big bad guy that Harry has to fight eventually, most fans hate Professor Umbridge more than they hate Tom Riddle, even though she's not the main bad guy. But there's something about the way that she's written and what she does that it, like, it's, it hits this chord with, with the fans, and they don't really like that character, even though she's just more of a minor bad guy. All right, let's keep going. Hannibal Lecter, Kaiser Sose, President Snow from The Hunger Games. If you're like me and you grew up without a girlfriend, you read The Lord of the Rings. Sauron. All right, this next one. A lot of people will say this is part of a trilogy, but there's one movie that stands out above the other two. And the difference between the first and the third compared to the second is the quality of the villain. So I'm talking about Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight Batman trilogy. And as the first one is really good, and the third one is really good, the second one, The Dark Knight, won Academy Awards because of Heath Ledger's Joker. And most people, if you watch that movie, even though it's a near-perfect movie, and the cinematography is amazing, and all the acting is great, and the set design, and the costumes, and, and, and the music score, and, it, and the story is, is all top shelf. But if you watch that movie, you'll quickly realize that it's Heath Ledger's Joker that is driving the story, that he's carrying the, the story. And the difference between the other Batman movies, where Christian Bale is a great Batman, and they don't have as good a villain, is that Heath Ledger's Joker is like iconic. He, he carried the movie. And I'll get to the last guy here. Maybe the most famous villain of all time, Darth Vader, terrorized children all through the 70s, right? Darth Vader from Star Wars, maybe the most iconic villain, at least in modern storytelling. Disney makes a boatload off selling toys, so, I mean, they'll tell you it's true. So we're going to talk about the villain of Christmas. And I'm not talking about Hans Gruber from Die Hard even though that's a Christmas movie. Villains represent opposition and a threat. They scheme and they plot. They're evil. They have power. They fear. There's death. They serve their own means, and they will sacrifice others in order to accomplish their goals. When they have power and control, they don't give it up easily. They don't part from it. They're devious, and they're manipulative, and they are ruthless. That's what a villain is. Doesn't that put you in the Christmas spirit? Ho, 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 right? I'm the villain of manipulative Christmas past. It is, this, is, this is very, very absurd. And so we're going to examine, just quickly, a new character in our story, our Christmas story today, King Herod. And I think as we start to just flesh out kind of what he was about and what's going on, we might catch a glimpse of something that's just a little deeper below the surface. So if you could turn with me, if you have your Bibles, turn to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We'll get right there. This is, just for some background, this is a very Jewish book written by a Jew, Matthew the tax collector, one of Jesus' disciples, 
for other Jews. And if you look closely throughout his book, the whole gospel of Matthew, you might notice some of Matthew's consistent themes or this common thread that goes through the entire book that he's trying to drive home. Like, what's the message of this, of this book? And that is that Jesus, Matthew believes that Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the entire biblical story from beginning to end. Like, Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the entire story of God and Israel. Like, God and Israel's story is summed up and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That's what Matthew believes. And he wants you to know that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he's a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and that not only that, but that Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, you might have heard the word Emmanuel. This is what Matthew believes. And he drops hints all throughout his gospel. And this thread goes through the whole thing, but... It's there in the beginning, in the introduction, too. And I would challenge you this week to just reread, perhaps, Matthew's gospel. Just try to take the perspective of Matthew. What did he think when he wrote this? And the readers, what did they think when they read this? Because he wasn't thinking of 2020 Grandma Nan when he wrote this, right? He's thinking about, he's, he's writing to a Jewish audience. So what was he trying to say? you might start to see some references to the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament and even some more references to some other prophets in the larger Old Testament. They pop up and you never noticed them before, but they're there on purpose. And as clear as it is through his entire book, it's even evident in the introduction. So here, Matthew begins his book in chapter one. You're right there, chapter one, verse one. He begins with a genealogy, like a list of names, right? So-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so. Amazing reading material. It keeps you up, right? <laughs> Gripping. If you're like me, I do most of my personal like devotion reading before bed, and that really keeps you up when you get to the chapters on just lists of names, right? It's so. But it's important. Matthew is doing this on purpose. He intentionally begins his book, Matthew 1.1. With this, the genealogy, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so he goes through a bunch of names after this. You can look at it yourself. It goes on and on and on. I'm not even going to try to say them all. But he makes it clear from the very start, the very first verse, the introduction, he makes it clear. The significant line of Jesus's heritage, like where Jesus came from. It's no mistake, this is not happenstance or luck, that Matthew names perhaps the two most important and influential people in all of Jewish history. King David, Israel's greatest king, and Abraham, the covenant father of every Jew. Matthew is making a case that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's drawing heavily, heavily on Old Testament heroes. And this would have been astoundingly clear to every first century Jew reading this. They would have read this, oh, he said, he said David, he said Abraham, I know what that means. This is, he's pulling from these patriarchal, these, these really significant people, and making a case for Jesus as the long-promised Messiah king. The only other person 
that would rival David and Abraham in significance to a Jew would be Moses, right? That's your big three. Abraham, Moses, David. Those are your three. The three most significant figures, I guess, in Jewish heritage. And if you look through the rest of Matthew's gospel work, he drops hints and comparisons between Jesus and Moses and references Jesus as a new and fulfilled teacher and lawmaker as Moses ascended after the Exodus and he went up Mount Sinai and met with God and the Israelites waited down below and Moses would come back and tell them this is what God said. As Moses was the guy who went up and met with God, Jesus is God coming down from the mountain and taking up flesh with his people. Like, this is the comparison that, that Matthew is drawing. And that is because, for Matthew, like every other Jew, the Exodus, God's story with Israel coming out of Egypt, that is paramount. And it's out of great evil and suffering that God decides he will be faithful and deliver his Hebrew people. Like, every Jew goes back and celebrates the Passover every year. This is significant. This is a rich story. A new baby Jesus presented as a teacher and a mediator, an Abrahamic father who will bring blessing, and a king from the line of David. Matthew is making the case for Jesus as the perfect ruler, the perfect teacher, and the promised Messiah king. And so, you can imagine that kings don't share very well, especially when one is a baby and the other acts like a baby, okay? They don't really share or play nice. The truth of the matter is that the birth of Jesus represented to King Herod something pretty significant. And Herod was not one to part from his seat of power Easily, History will tell us that Herod was a pretty bad guy. In fact, he went and he killed his own children and his wife because they were threats to his throne. Because they were related to the previous family ruling class, the Hasmoneans. And he was afraid that they all had claims to the crown that was maybe more stable or more well-liked than his own. And so once someone became a rival, he did away with them, Right? Jesus requires a response. And so today, I just, for a few minutes, I'd like to just examine Herod's response to the birth of Jesus. Now, first, if you're thinking about Herod, just in, as a summary of kind of who he was, if I could sum it up, I'll tell you this. There's a period of history known as Herod's reign of terror. That's not really something you can, like, sweep under the rug, you know? Like, you can't say, like, Herod, I see all this stuff you're doing. You expanded the temple you did all of this stuff. You mediated between the Romans and the Jews. You had all these different policies. You built these roads. But like, hey, what's this? It says you had like a reign of terror. What's that about? And he's like, it's just a phase. Don't worry about it. Like that's, if you have a reign of terror, anytime in history, if we look back on these people in our own more recent history who had reigns of terror, it's not really just a phase, right? This is, it takes a certain type of person to get to that place. Herod had a reign of terror. 
And the Roman Emperor Augustus joked that it was better to be Herod's pig than his own son. I'm just going to let you think about that just for one second. This was an extremely offensive thing to say to a Jew, especially, because why is that? Why would it be worse to be, why would it be better to be Herod's pig than his son? Well, that would be offensive to every Jew because a pig is unclean. I don't have pigs. I don't touch pigs. If I come in contact with a pig, I'm dirty. I'm shamed. I have to be cleaned. There's a ritual. I, like, I'm, I'm at, in separation with God, right? Because I've, because I've broken a commandment. And so I don't, like, I do not come in contact or near or own or anything. Pigs. And yet Augustine says, Augustus, sorry, says that it's better to be Herod's pig than his own children. So how does he treat people? What does that say? Why did he do this? Well, there are a few clues as to why Herod may have felt uneasy and lashed out about the stability of his rule, his kingship. Number one, how he came to power. A combination of military success, political scheming and plotting, and a large part of bribing Roman officials allowed him to replace the former leading class, the Hasmoneans, and take their place. And so he didn't really come to power in a traditional way. You could see a lot of like maneuvering, paying people off, winning fights, scheming. And because of that, anyone in his own family who was related to the former dynasty, he, got rid- he had him done over. He was, get rid of him. So, the other part, though technically Jewish in like a strictly literal way, Herod was an Edomite, which means that he was a descendant of Esau and not Jacob. And so biologically, like he would look the same and they would have the same blood and all this type of stuff as, a, as like a mainline Jew. But we all know that, that the, the, the covenant blessing of God with Abraham, passed to Isaac, and then passed to Jacob, who took Esau's birthright, right? And so there's some long-seated generational tensions between the Israelites descended from Jacob, who believe that they have inherited this blessing, this covenant relationship with God through their father, and then those of Esau, or the Edomites, that maybe feel like they are, they, theirs was taken. And so you can see how there's some tensions that might start to form between king and subjects when the king's ascension to the crown is under dispute and kind of looked at like it was not legitimate or a little underhanded. And then you add in some sort of like racial tension and what, all of that 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 implies. Like there, the, the point of it is that Herod's, subjects did not like him, and there was probably not a single thing that Herod could ever do that would change that. There was nothing. And so he starts to feel insecure about his rule and starts to lash out at any threat or any rival. And so that's our framework. So let's jump into our story really quick. 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the, the time of King Herod, magi or wise men or astrologers from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and they've and have come to worship him. So I'm sure this didn't sit well with Herod. I wouldn't recommend doing it, going up to the insecure king and saying, hey, we're here, where's the king? He's like, and they're like, not you. Where's the real king? I'm looking for the real king, not you. That would not go over very well. And the Bible tells us in verse three that when Herod heard this, he was very disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And that's an interesting phrase, and all Jerusalem with him. But I think it acknowledges this idea that the people knew that if Herod had a rival or feared a rival, that it meant suffering for everybody, right? This guy was ruthless. He'd just rip even his own kids. He'd, he'd root you out. And we're going to see that that actually goes on to happen. So Herod's response, he decides to call together all of the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Sanhedrin. He gets his big think tank together, and he goes to them, and he says, where is the Messiah to be born? And there's a subtle hint in there. It's implied that Herod has no idea. He has no idea what the prophets say about the Messiah. He doesn't know. So what does that say about how he lives as a Jew? That he wouldn't understand or know. And so he goes to the Sanhedrin and he asks them. And he's given an opportunity. What's his response going to be? Even as a small baby child, Jesus, as a king, represents a heavenly kingdom that is intersecting with Herod's earthly kingdom, and it's a clash of kings, and one of them, they can't coexist. One of them is, is going to beat the other. What is his response going to be? He has a choice to make. And it's interesting to note that even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two sects of, of Jewish priesthood, they disagreed on a whole bunch of stuff. But they come forward and they give Herod one united answer. They don't hide it. They don't like mess with it a little bit so that maybe he doesn't know where the Messiah is. We can protect it. No, they just tell him. They just tell him. They quote Micah 5, 2 and 4. They say, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you, this is Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So now, Sher now Herod's got what he wants. He's got the location. All right? So now he has a decision to make. What's he going to do? So he calls the Magi to him secretly. These astrologers, these foreign wise men, they come in. He says, this is a secret plot. Come here. And he sends them away with a lie once he's figured out when they saw the star. I can get the age of the kid. I, I know where he is. Okay, now I've got all this. Hey, you go on ahead. When you find him, positively identify this king, this kid, come back to me, tell me where he is because I want to go worship him. This is not what's actually going to happen, right? Like this is a plot. He's manipulating. He's, he's scheming. And so it's an interesting picture that Matthew is painting here, a scene of Israel's king and its priests and its scribes, all these people who should be doing something else. They are plotting and waiting while shepherds and foreign Gentile astrologers are going out of their way to go and find the kid, the baby king, and worship him. This seems a little backwards, no? 
that the people who, who have long waited for the Messiah would be the people who would sit back and plot, but the people who have no sort of ancestral connection to all this are like willing to like go to the ends of the earth to find what's going on. Matthew's got this interesting contrast going here. And you see that continue through all of the gospel as Jesus as an adult will often surround himself with people that you wouldn't expect him to, a lot of people who might be losers or rejects or unclean, sick people, while a lot of teachers, priests, scribes, and other high-ranking officials who might know what they're talking about, Jesus doesn't often associate with those people in the way that you would expect them to. And so the story continues with the Magi leaving Jerusalem and heading towards Bethlehem. They find the child, they worship him. So here's the picture. Magi worshiping, Herod plotting. Two different responses, no? So verse 13 tells us that after the Magi had left Bethlehem, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, and warns him that Herod was searching for the baby. So you can imagine Joseph and what he's thinking and Mary and what she's thinking. So this whole story has been absurd. Out of wedlock, teen pregnancy, in this, in, back in Mary's hometown, and everybody's talking and saying, hey, did you hear Mary's pregnant? Oh, but they said it, it was God. Like nobody actually believes that, Right? And so Joseph is going to divorce her because he doesn't want to kill her. And instead, an angel appears to Joseph and says, no, don't do that. You need to be with this girl. And so they decide that they're going to try to make it work, and that's even more scrutiny. And then all of a sudden, the Romans show up and they say, hey, you need to travel across the country to wherever your family's homeland is. You need to register for a census because we want to tax you and take more of your money. Okay. So Mary gets on a donkey. She's pregnant. They go across the country. They get to Bethlehem. All of a sudden, she goes into labor. This isn't how things were supposed to be, right? She was supposed to be able to go back to be with her family, her mom, maybe a midwife, the plans to have a kid. But now she's in this foreign place with her husband's family, and there's no place for them, and they end up shoved in this cave or this shack or like a stable, or it's just a very, this whole story is so crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy. But baby's healthy. Everybody's okay. And then some foreign people show up, and they give you these gifts and money. And these shepherds show up, and they stink. And it's, this whole thing is like, what is this? What is going on? And then just as things sort of settle down, Joseph can hear these footsteps coming from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And he maybe starts to picture, oh, my son is the promised Messiah, like the future king. And this is his procession. They're going to come and they're going to pick him up and they're going to bring him into the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. And they're going to lift him up and put him in a place of honor. It's going to be amazing. And the angel says to Joseph, no, no, no. Those are Roman soldiers with a price on your kid's head. There's nothing but death marching towards you. And so they get up and they, and Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they flee to Egypt and, and the Bible tells us that they stay there for a few years until Herod 
is finally dead. So I don't know about you, but this does not seem very Christmassy. There's not a lot of tinsel going on here, right? Popcorn, strings, and lights. This isn't a very Christmassy thing. And certainly, when Herod discovered that Jesus had gotten away and the wise men had tricked him, Herod, when he decided he was going to lash out and he was going to slaughter all the boys in the whole area around Bethlehem that were two and under, he's going to kill them all. I'm not sure that anybody thought it was a holly jolly Christmas or that that night that there was peace on earth. Herod's response was that he was going to kill Jesus rather than bow to him. And he decided that his power, his status, his control, and his kingdom was more important to him than humbly worshiping the everlasting king of kings. And so as all of the death and the destruction rolled across the land, it could become very easy to wonder where is God in the midst of all of this? There are like women crying for their killed children. I'm in a foreign land. I'm away from my family. I have nothing. What is going on? And it can be easy to start to wonder, if God is good and he loves me, why doesn't he stop this? And then because this evil keeps happening, God is either not good or he doesn't love me or he's not there at all. There is death on the air, there is great evil and injustice, and you wonder, man, where is God in all of this? And it's out of this evil and this darkness and death that Matthew invites us to discover God's response. See, the Christmas story in Matthew is full of prophecies of Old Testament citations and references that Matthew uses to invite us into a deeper understanding of what God is really doing. I wish I had a thousand more hours to pick each word apart. However, just for the last minute or two here, let's check out verse 15, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. And there's a picture of Mary and Joseph fleeing into the dark at night to go to Egypt. And Matthew says in verse 15, and so it was fulfilled that what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Like this is a prophecy. Out of Egypt, I'll call my son. Eventually Jesus will return from Egypt. This is a beautiful prophecy, right? You'll notice here, if you have footnotes in your Bible or not, it's a, I'll tell you right here if you don't, you'll notice here that Matthew is quoting the minor prophet Hosea, especially in chapter 11, verse one. You can flip there if you want and see what Hosea said. Check out the full context of what Hosea says, because this is very interesting what Matthew is doing here. This is Hosea 11.1, 1, the full verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh, one more time. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So in this scripture that Matthew is quoting, who is the son that's called out of Egypt? It's, it's Israel. It's not Jesus. It's Hosea is, is, is talk, in Hosea, it's talking about Israel and not Jesus. God is calling the nation of Israel his son, and he does this all through the Old Testament. It's not about Jesus at all. In fact, he's talking about the Exodus with Moses leading the Israelite people out of Egypt. But remember for Matthew, everything goes back to the Exodus. Everything is about that. So what's going on here? 
Matthew is either a complete dummy and just takes this scripture that's not talking about Jesus and says, this is talking about Jesus, and he just copy-paste, boom, right? He's either doing that, and it's a grave, grave mistake, or he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing, and I think that's what he's doing. So here's what he's doing. He wants us to understand something. Matthew wants us to understand something, to catch a glimpse of something that's just a little bit deeper, that just as Israel is God's son, Jesus is the true son of God. Matthew is drawing a comparison between Israel and Jesus because remember we said at the beginning that Matthew believes the whole biblical story about God and Israel is summed up in Jesus and fulfilled in him. That where Israel failed, Jesus was gonna succeed. That where Israel made a covenant with God and then constantly fell short or decided they were gonna do something else or worship somebody else, Instead, Jesus is the true, greater, fulfilled son of God that Israel is not, and Jesus is going to make all things right. Like, this is what Matthew is trying to say. You see, Matthew intentionally mirrors the Exodus story, a nation suffering under an evil ruler, Pharaoh, Herod. A flight from Egypt becomes a flight to Egypt, Baby boys being slaughtered in the cover of night. And God's great response to all of this evil and injustice was to send a deliverer, Moses. Only this time it would be the deliverer, Jesus. You see, the Christmas story is all about the presence of God descending from the mountain, taking flesh and becoming Emmanuel, God with us. It's about God putting himself in our story. Herod's response was to reject all that Jesus stood for and represented. And the question for us is, what is our response going to be? What are we going to do about Jesus? Villains represent opposition and threat, scheming, plotting, evil, power, fear, death, but Jesus' kingdom is not like Herod's kingdom. Where Herod's is all of that, Jesus is love and honesty, goodness, peace, and life. Where a villain will serve their own means and sacrifice other people to accomplish their goals, Jesus is self-sacrificial. Where Herod has power and control and he won't part from it easily, he's not going to give it up. Philippians tells us that Jesus set aside willingly his divine privileges and took on flesh. A villain is devious and manipulative and ruthless, and yet the Bible tells us that Jesus is a graceful and forgiving king. Herod's response was evil, and that evil caused a great deal of destruction. But Jesus shows us a better way of living. Matthew's gospel will teach us that even out of death and chaos, God is bringing about a new beginning. Perhaps you've had something traumatic in your past happen, or maybe it will be in the future. But without overblowing it, I think that 2020 has taken on a shade, just a shade of this, where there is constant death and depression around us, 
There's an uneasy tension. People are sick. There is injustice around the world, political, economical. It's just, it's never ending. And in the midst of all of that, it can be really easy to be like, where is God in the midst of all of this? Like the world is off its hinge. Where is God in the midst of this? Have you abandoned us? Matthew reminds us that he will send a deliverer, Jesus. And he wants us to realize that in the midst of all this great evil and suffering and a world chaos, God is working and establishing a new beginning. And we are invited to join with Jesus, bringing about his new beginning here on Graham and Ann. The only question that I have for you is what is our response to Jesus going to be? What's more important to me, my kingdom or his kingdom? You pray with me? All right. God, thanks for this awesome time that we could have been together. It's something that I have probably taken for granted for too long. And uh, if there's one thing, God, that you have made very clear to me in this whole year of chaos, is that we need people and we need to be together. And so, God, I want to thank you for this time together, but would you help open our hearts and our minds to understand that when everything around us is going crazy and there's uneasiness everywhere and it feels like there's just nothing but darkness, that your answer to all of this was to insert yourself into all of that, into that messiness, and establish a new beginning. And we can often be like a King Herod, and we can decide we're going to put our stake in the ground and die on this hill. God, would you help us be willing to instead get up from our throne, go and find you, bow down and worship you, and see your kingdom establish itself here on Grand Manet. Would you help us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening and joining us today. If you'd like to know more about the Lighthouse Church, you can find us on Facebook at Lighthouse Graham and Ann or on Instagram at The Lighthouse GM. We'd love to chat with you more. Maybe something jumped out at you or grabbed your attention while you were listening today. We would love to talk with you and discuss some of the deeper questions of life together. God loves you, we love you, and we're in this together.